But you just have to excuse me also, I'm just taking off my shoes. Because they're, they're squeaking on the floor. Uh, oh, you're not going to hit me with the sole of your shoe? <laughs> no. No, and I'll stop at the shoes. I won't. I'll keep everything else on. Uh, welcome to North v South podcast, which is about, but not about design. I'm Rob Turpin, and I'm talking to John Ellerman. And um, yeah, this is episode 32. It sure is. How are you today? I'm good. It's about to get better. Yeah. Why? Yeah, ah. I've just, I've just opened a beer. No. I'm opening a beer, and it's got a really strange top on it. It's quite a small can of beer. It's Norwegian beer. But you open the the top, and it's obviously meant to be drunk from, because it, it takes the entire lid off the beer. Ah, like Sapporo. Oh, do they do that? Well, that's the old trendy 80s yuppie beer. Um that yeah. yeah all the yuppies drank and you and you peeled the whole top off and it yeah, became yeah. a glass yeah cool so this what? is my um my local beer shop has a really um, just amazing i was staggered today when i went in an amazing selection of beers but they must be um i don't know if they're all imported by the same people or they're all in exactly the same size cans and with the same style tops so that regardless of the brewery and Kind of where they're from. Um, what, so, yeah, they're just they're Norwegian just... or from all around the world? No, 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 all around the world. Oh, right. You know, there's English ones and American ones. So I've got a whole selection, but they're all in exactly the same type of can. Oh. And were, were you taxed heavily? Are you being taxed <laughs> as you drink that? No, no, it's it's uh, it's perfectly acceptable. I think it was uh, £2.20. What kind of lager? Is it a lager or a it bitter? It is. Uh, it's a pale ale. It's a Norwegian citrus pale ale called dag and it comes in a, <laughs> it comes in a bright orange isn't that what the, a, the australian market's pretty slow for that beer yeah yeah if i would have thought so yeah <laughs> uh, but it's in a bright orange can which right. is why i bought it of course obviously uh, i look forward to the photograph mm. I, i'm i shall i pour mine yeah why not um oh i've already done it uh well i was up in the old hood today so um i bought a twick a twick and a mail Oh, which one did you go for? A grandstand. I like that one. Ah, um, yep, that's why I used to drink in a pub. But um, it was in Marks and Spencer of all places when I nipped in there for something. They've got quite oh. a good selection of beer these days. I don't think I've ever looked in there for yeah. beer. Well, they had all the Camden and you know, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. How was uh, How was Teddington? How was your meeting? Good, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I like Carly. She's great. And... Uh, Yep, got some work. Uh, did some work in a cafe, like a like a proper, um, you know, urbanite type person. <laughs> did it have Wi Fi for you to use? It did, yeah. And um, I I just had my I, I'd lumped my um, my uh, laptop up there with everything in it, and I actually just ended up working off my iPad, and it was absolutely fine oh, cool. and, and brilliant. I lo- I love my iPad Pro thing. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, um, yeah, I was up there, did that and then came back down again. Um, so that takes up a whole day really these days. It does, doesn't it? Sorry, I, uh, sorry. I didn't get a chance to pop over and say hello for a coffee. Oh, that's all right. I was just dealing with, um, you know, client requests. So yeah, this week we're going to talk about uh, some of our favorite paintings. So I'm really excited to see what yours are because I, I 
I saw very briefly that you'd written some down, but I haven't, I haven't looked at them because I want to be surprised by them. And, um, I had a real trouble deciding which ones I was going to pick. So well, we've, we're, picked, we've picked three, haven't we? I could have picked 33. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that, which is great, isn't it? On a, on a, on an audio podcast, we're going to talk about paintings. <laughs> it's all right. We just need to talk. Uh, we need to do at least a thousand words on each picture, don't we? Yes. And then everything will be fine. So what, what have you been up to, Rob? Uh, I've been drawing. Um, Inkturba, which I've talked about a few times, uh, has begun. And so I've been drawing and posting pictures across social media um, of my little, these little isometric buildings. So I've started out drawing kind of little sort of medieval-y, fantasy, slightly sort of hobbity looking houses. Um, and then I had a change of pace today and I've, I've, I'm going to do a few little sci-fi ones and then I might move on and do some, some stuff maybe from World War Two, kind of some like sort of bomb damaged French villages, <laughs> um, or something like that. Um, but that's been really good fun. It's surprising how much work there is in them. Um, as always, I don't really sort of tailor the amount of effort I put into them to the amount of you know, monetary reward I might get from them because they're all for sale. Um, but that's been going well and a few of them are sold already. Uh, so I've been doing that. What else have I been doing? Uh, I watched Luke Cage. You watched a bit of that as well, did you? you- I watched the first episode in a bit the yeah. other night. Yeah, did really- you like it? Not yeah, much. I did. I-, I did. I didn't know what it was at all. I had never heard of it. Um, yeah, I'm like your cultural oasis, aren't I? <laughs> you're, no, not oasis at all. I'm like a desert. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I thought it was really well made. And yeah, I thought it was brilliant. I've watched it all. All right. Um, while I've been drawing, um, if you don't know, it's a Netflix. It's one of the Marvel Netflix TV series. Um, yeah, and it's brilliant. I, I think it's done superbly well. I think the guy that plays Luke Cage is brilliant and the soundtrack is phenomenal um, and just gets better and better throughout the series. So that was good fun. Um, and um, the only other thing I've been doing is cursing the Royal Mail because they um, they squashed one of the commissions that I posted out that took me way too long to draw. So now I've got to draw it again. What? Because it got a great big crease right through the middle of it that can't be ironed out apparently was it in a roll no i post them out in those kind of like amazon thick card envelopes and then i back that with two pieces of stiff card as well and write all over it please do not pend and i send it registered and signed for uh and still they occasionally get knackered oh man so that's annoying yeah. It's more the time it's going to take me to redo it. Have you tried drawing a tiny um, LED uh, TV screen on it? I, I did think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll work. Yeah, I'll really draw like, like a, an iPad a, on it or a, a rabbit, uh, a TV for a rabbit family. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but So that was annoying. Um, but that was about it, I think. That's kind of been my week. About you. Oh, you know, just working on with clients, listening to drivel and um, just ignoring nonsense behaviour. So, yeah, nothing much to report, really. 
Has there um, been any war gaming this week? Uh, no, no, I didn't last night. I was too busy. I had some had some print deadlines. I've had some crazy print deadlines uh, that I've spoken about already, haven't I? I think mm. um, so. Uh, yeah, um, I've yeah just been ridiculous. So uh, I'm nothing to say about clients other than good things. <laughs> Excellent. It's a wonderful frame of mind. So, yes, I will only say good things about clients, so I have nothing to say. <clears throat> cool. Um, well, one thing we did um, see this week, we got a bit of feedback on the podcast. Did we? Um, yeah, we did. Martin, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his surname. Martin, if you're listening, you'll have to send me an audio file of how you pronounce your surname. Uh, Riven oh, yeah. from, uh, from Holland, uh, who's a, an illustrator and designer. He sent us a message on Facebook. Uh, about your uh, topic last week about it was the 117th anniversary of was it the biro or the bic the biro wasn't it and that got onto a discussion about that uh, um what was it called the um, simultaneous inventions mm-hmm. and martin sent us a message telling us about there was a dutch chap called Lawrence Janszoon Costa who was credited with simultaneously inventing the printing press at the same time that Gutenberg did. Um, But very recently, historians have discovered that the guy never existed and was invented by some humanists in Harlem uh, who couldn't quite accept that Holland played no part in this momentous (laughs) invention. And we had exchanged a couple of messages about, you know, I wonder how many other fictitious characters have been created to um sort of plug a gap in national pride yeah um but it's almost a podcast in itself that there must be quite a few i mean you mentioned sort of um um robin hood didn't you i can't remember who else yeah folk story folk heroes are often you know arthur is one isn't he yeah i'm just thinking about superman is one for the americans i mean you know isn't he is it well i don't know no one thinks he's real what? <laughs> For Father Christmas. Yeah. Now don't okay, go there. You got that. Okay. But no, it was nice to get some feedback. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was nice. Yeah. People listening and paying attention. Um, so thanks, Martin, for that. So if you if you have got anything to say about the topics we talk about tonight, then do get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah. Um, Oh, there was also Brian Rombo, Rombau, yes, Rombau, yes. Um, and he said that uh, yeah, lead having lead in a spaceship is not good, and that yes. wasn't a euphemism. It means that bits of graphite floating around is conductive and therefore can set off explosions in a pure yeah. pure oxygen environment. So, not good. So I was I was corrected by yourself and <clears throat> by Brian. It's good. Yeah, but my, mine was chance. something like you know that that, that uh, pencils just wouldn't work. Because mm. of gravity. <laughs> but Brian went all sciencey on us. Yeah. Yeah. Good old ah, science. So, uh, to this week's news, what have you got? Well, we're always talking about. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that one. Um, Samsung Galaxy Note. Yes. Uh, it's. Um, they've re released uh, a new version of it because it's been bursting into flames. They recalled them all, didn't they? Yeah. And someone with a brand new one yesterday morning, um, it burst into flames on an aeroplane. Yeah, that's not good, is it? No, that is not good at all. Um, Brilliantly good PR for Apple and their tiny phone batteries. Well, they're getting absolutely pasted, aren't they, for having no battery capability whatsoever. In fact, I'm having lots of issues with mine at the moment. Um, 
Yeah, just discharging from 20% r- roughly around there, just suddenly turning yeah. off and not How being able to get back on. Less than a year. Oh, it's like yeah. four or five months. Did you I have find that? The best, yeah, I did. I find the best thing to do is to find something wrong with your phone and then go play hell at an Apple store until they replace it. Yeah. And then obviously you get uh, one with a fresh battery. Yeah. Because they don't, they don't last two years or 18 months. They last about a year and then they're absolute rubbish. I, I think that they're being practical about the, the whole battery situation. It looks like Samsung are just are absolutely loading in the battery, you know, with a huge battery into yep. their phones. And that is just not, uh, the cool, they've got serious cooling issues. Yeah. Um, but it's not good that these things are, are liable to uh catch fire and keep burning like some kind of alien yeah because uh, apparently it burnt through the carpet well this is um you know hearsay but it burnt through the carpet and was still burning when the plane was evacuated <clears throat> yeah batteries are kind of like the new um megahertz aren't they when there was the kind of whole megahertz battle of speed of computer processors and apple kind of willfully didn't get involved in that they they didn't even used to um published the speed of their processors at one point and it was all about the the system and how that everything worked better together and their technology was just made in faster chips but microsoft or or uh, intel just used to use the advertising of as you know this is the quickest chip it's a bit like that now with batteries i guess you know some companies are squeezing every last ounce out of their batteries and Apple are kind of staying where they are, aren't they? Then you know they they must figure they've kind of come to a certain point where you know you can't squeeze any more uh, power out of that type of battery. I think. No, well, I mean you you look at their um their tablet products; they're absolutely incredible battery on them. You know, my yeah. iPad is about ten hours, which is fantastic. Uh, but you know, compared to an old laptop, which was what an hour and a half at tops, and my, my one at the moment, a couple of hours, if that. Um, but you know, even their watch is only a day, isn't it? And mm. they, they've kind of set that they don't really, they don't make a big song and dance out of it, and they haven't got um, remote charging or whatever you call it, contactless yeah. charging, and uh, they're just not going near it because it's technology that they cannot affect. It is impossible, like you say, it is that. Um, it is a fixed piece that, uh, of technology that is only going to improve very, very slowly over the next few years. And once yeah. they cracked it, it will just speed up. But what's well, the point? Well, I guess, I, I guess the, the change that everyone's waiting for are um, fuel cells, aren't they? Miniature fuel cells. So, you you know, you add a drop of water to the top of your phone once a week and you never have to charge it. Well, they'll be waterproof, Rob. You won't get water in there. Oh, God, yeah. What are they going to do then? They'll have to drill know. a hole in the bottom. Did you see that, the... <laughs> Uh, the spoof videos yeah. going around about <laughs> Apple. If you uh, you drill a hole in the bottom of the casing of the new iPhone sevens, you can plug a, a standard headphone jack in. Yeah, it's the same people. If you told them that there was one behind their forehead as well, that they would probably <laughs> yeah. sit there with a lobotomy kit. Absolutely, it's a mar- and people have actually people drilled into their phones. Have and ruined their phones. Uh, Fools. Yes. What have you got, Rob? Uh, well, my first bit of news isn't isn't particularly news. It's a program I watched on uh, watched it on iPlayer, and it was called Britain's Starmen, and it uh, it was on BBC Four, and it's four astronomers, uh, four British astronomers who in the 1960s went over to the US, where kind of 
you know, the vast majority of the the big uh, astronomical equipment was at uh, the Palom- Mount Palomar Observatory and the Hill Telescope and things like that in the 60s. And they were all kind of at the cutting edge of research. And now they're all in their 80s and 90s. So to celebrate 50 years of their friendship and 50 years of since they went out to America to study and research and work, they um, they were followed on kind of a road trip, taking in some of the places that they'd worked at uh, and even taking in uh, a hike they did to the, the Rainbow Arch National Park. Um, and it was just, it's just one of the most beautiful little programs. It's an hour long and it is, it's interesting if you're into science, but more than that, it's just heartwarming and touching you know seeing these these four friends in uh in sort of increasingly old age just talking about their early lives um and it's brilliant i can't recommend it hardly enough britain's oh, starmen i'll be watching that one definitely that sounds yeah, brilliant i play it's beautiful really really lovely oh, great there's um we're talking about design competitions and how badly they've been run recently. Virgin Railway uh, did it really badly, didn't they, a few weeks yep. ago. Uh, Astropad, who were in trouble for their last one, of asking for free designs of their new uh, of their new app coming out. So Astropad right. is the app that allows you to draw from your screen onto your iPad, effectively turning it yep. into a, a uh, what's it, like Wacom. A or- yeah. Um, they are running, they, they've got a design competition um, and I, it's a different way to do it. I just wondered what your thoughts are on it. It's called Next Frontier. And what they're doing is they are, um, they're, they're asking for people to do art uh, unpaid, um, but the artists maintain ownership of all work. Uh, but what they're doing is they're going to print it onto a, a T-shirt and sell it. Um, as, and then the artist will receive a hundred percent of the profits from the t-shirt as well as a couple of, um, little gadgets and things like that. Yeah. Um, and what do you think of something like that where they've actually openly declared that it, you know, and they're quite honest about it and they're not actually using it to promote their, their own product at all. Um, it's not going into, into their marketing sort of bag of tricks. How do you um, feel about that? Or do you think that's just masked? I think it is a bit of a mask. I mean, essentially, you are still asking hundreds of artists to contribute something, aren't you, for free, and only one of them is going to get any benefit. Um, I mean, I think they are being a little more honest about it, and the bit about artists maintaining ownership of all their work is, is important because too many of these kind of competitions... You know, you enter your your illustration or your design, and and that's it. It belongs to whoever. Um, I mean, I guess it's not it's not dissimilar to trying to get a, a t shirt printed through Threadless or Type Tees, is it? Um, I don't no. know. Um, Ambivalent. Yeah. I mean, I guess because it's an artistic platform. You know, it it makes sense to get artists involved, um, and obviously it's going to promote them. But I, you know, because they're asking people to post their stuff on Instagram, hashtagging it and and tagging the Astropad into it. So, you know, it does promote them. But um, I don't know. I mean, 
if you haven't got stuff on, <laughs> you know, if you've got a bit of free time and you like Astropad, then, you know, go for it. I don't, I think it's very, I think competitions have their place, but you, you know, it's difficult. <laughs> I don't really know how I feel about this. Can you tell? Yeah. <laughs> um, because they are asking people to work for free, which you just categorically shouldn't do. But it's a competition, and if you want to draw, draw. And there's a chance that you'll, you know, benefit in the end. I guess, you know, if everyone worked in the same way, that's the problem, isn't it? And if no one was commissioning illustration work or design work and everything was just competitions and, you know, chances to contribute then that's where it becomes a problem. Yeah, I mean, you could say, I mean, we're going to talk about this in a bit, but you could say without uh, without a financial world commissioning art, art is going to die in the water, isn't it? And that mm. is why it's so important that we support the arts in this country and that we get big businesses behind art because yeah. that's how it funds it. You know, that's where, where do you think the money comes from? It doesn't come yeah. from selling the pieces, does it? generally um yeah i just thought it was an interesting sort of uh, they're trying to do, to develop their marketing in a bit a bit of a way but i think it to me it felt like it's just the same more of the same yeah uh i would uh really like this though it's the Leica sofort have you seen this oh no it's a new Leica, and it's under two thousand pounds in fact oh, yeah. it's only a couple hundred quid Wow. The, the downside is it's an instant camera. How strange. Yes, exactly. Uh, so Leica have released a uh, an instant camera. It's not even got their own proprietary, um, you know, uh, paper in it. It's just the Fuji square one that you can get or, the, you know, the rectangles, yeah. I think. Um, and... Uh, but it looks really cool. You can get a leather case for it, obviously. Yeah. Uh, it's got the red dot on it, which makes it look beautiful. But my, my thing, my my question about it is, why are Leica doing this? Because they are about image quality. Uh, the, the brand is about quality. And yes, it looks like a quality product. And for a couple hundred quid for an instant camera that you can get for 30 quid, um, it's yeah, outrageous. It's, it's, never the, it's, never, it's never usually the camera that costs the money with instant cameras, is it? It's the film. Yeah, but what does it say about their brand? I don't know, because it doesn't look like a Leica. Um, it looks like a Fisher-Price version of a Leica. It looks like the I Instagram think. logo used to look like. It does. It does. I mean, there is one plus. It comes in orange. <laughs> it's not um, a very nice orange, though, is it? No, nah, it's a bit weird. I mean, it's strange. I mean, I guess it's going to have Leica lenses and Leica technology, so it's going to be a better quality picture than you'd get from a normal instant camera it's got a zoom on it why do i, I want it so much because <laughs> <laughs> you can't afford a proper like uh, i can't afford a camera uh, i've got plenty of cameras but not that i ever use them these days um yeah. but yeah I, I just think it's i think it's a really interesting move for them i'm guessing it's a brand-led move it's a it's a it's a move to move into that space of the instagrammer sort of quick yeah, cheap and easy images that everyone's obsessed with these days. Well, uh, if they'd have if they'd have made it um, Wi-Fi enabled as a as a cheap camera, so you can print one out, but upload that image straight to Instagram, and they've made it, giving it a, a square format sensor. What a brilliant idea! Then that kind of works. Yeah, 
you know, you can imagine all the bloggers, you know, knocking themselves over to, to get their hands on one of those. Yeah, I love that idea, Rob. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, uh, just, okay. <laughs> I'd like it. Um, yeah, I'd quite like a, a Leica rangefinder from the seventies. Yes. That would be my perfect camera. In fact, the, uh, the Olympus, the OM ones and twos very much rangefindery in the way yeah. they work, aren't they? Um, I've got, I don't know. I'm not I've got an OM two here that I love. Absolutely love, but I've, it's a film one, but again, time two year old. No. Yes. Yeah. You're going to be taking a camera on our walk at the, uh, next week. Yeah, I might, I might dust off the, uh, the OM two actually. And, um, I've got a really nice Panasonic Lumix, which was built by Leica, uh, the lenses. And that's very nice. Little sort of, um, street, street camera. That was yeah. actually been my f- most favourite camera I've ever had, and it, all it is yeah. is a, a single. It's a fixed lens. I think it's an f two. Yeah, uh, and I, lo- I love that camera. I, I shoot in black and white on it. Weirdly, and um, you sounded like a pro then. Do I? I shoot in black and white? Well, I just like the black and whites that it that the yeah, JPEGs yeah. come out of the camera. Um, I've got a Canon, an old twenty D Canon that um is yep. a bit bit knackered, so it, and it crashes all the time. But that was a fantastic camera when I bought it. And these days, I've got a Panasonic Lumix, one of those Micro Four Thirds ones. <clears throat> yeah, but I've never liked similar it. Similar to mine, isn't it? Yeah, I just don't like it. Um, I love the lenses for it, and I'd like the Olympus um, version of it, the OMD one. But yeah. I, I just, I never got on with it. I don't feel it's a good camera. It's more like a video camera that takes stills. Okay. <clears throat> um, yeah, just don't like the feel. But I love, I love the Canon. I'd love a five D, please. Anyone. Feeling generous, the new one. <laughs> Although I could talk about cameras forever. Maybe we do a thing on cameras. Yeah, we probably should. Are you going to bring your camera on Tuesday? Yes. Is definitely. it waterproofed? Is it got water? No. Is it? Is the weather looking that bad? Well, I don't know. I just be careful. That's all. Okay. I went up a mountain with a uh, with a digital camera and came down without one. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Uh, um, what's next? I've got uh, I've got an article from your favourite. Um, Magazine, a creative review. Oh yeah, um, but it's one that we're we're probably going to talk about in a, a podcast special at some point about the business of design, and it's um, it's about pricing, and it's Alex Reed of Design Studio Bam, right? Who I've never heard of. No, um, uh, tells all apparently about pricing, um, and they kind of do. And kind of done. He talks about the, the sort of size of their agency and how old they are and where their team kind of came from, uh, how they you know request a certain amount as a deposit, a certain amount as uh, when they start the work and the remainder when it's finished and delivered. Um, they talk about some of the overheads they have uh, in their office. Um and then they talk about how much they charge. They're a web design agency. And they're saying when they first started, they charged 800 quid plus VAT for a website. And then they obviously realized it was too low and they added a grand and did a few more at that price. And then, you know, they've put it up and I think they're working at three grand plus VAT for a website, which is, they say, 100% custom designed, coded and built with a stripped back WordPress CMS. Um, but it that figure itself still you know seems to be plucked from nowhere um they say that because they say later on that they they're taking on new website projects for five grand plus that um although they know three grand is a 
is a good amount that they can fall back on should work dry up. Um, and I think the key thing about this article, because pricing is, you know, an art, not a science, I think. Although, obviously, you, you know, you need to factor in a lot of actual figures rather than just guessing. Um, it's something that we, we really struggle about talking about, I think, as designers. And I don't know whether that's because we're, you know, embarrassed that, you know, people think we're charging too much for the quality of work we do or, you know, my point of view, I'm sometimes embarrassed to talk about it because people say I should be charging way too much. You know, they're kind of, I'm, you know, not valuing myself or my work enough. Um, and I think sometimes it's just difficult to, to go into the ins and outs of justifying why you charge so much, whether that's to a client or, or to a, a peer. Um, but they end this, this article by saying uh, there are people who charge a lot less and will go up at our pricing, as well as people who charge a lot more and may not feel we're doing ourselves justice. All we know is it is right for us at the moment. And I think that bit about it being right for you at the moment is the key thing about not just pricing, but the way you run your business full stop. I mean, yes, you can always improve kind of workflow and, you know, the, the, the processes you've got in place. Um, and you shouldn't just kind of sit on your, your laurels and, and uh, you know, stagnate. But that, I think it's, it is always what works for you, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. I think the figures that they give could be, you could add zeros, take away zeros. It doesn't really matter, yeah. but that, that's, yeah. that, that's the point. I think that their business setup is, if they were employing people, they would be out of business very quickly. Yeah, uh, I think, I, I think they're all, sort of partners, they're all partners, aren't they? Because they're just paying themselves like, you know, the old get around tax way, 1400 pounds. Yeah. You're not going to get a decent designer for that a month. No. You, you know, you, you're looking at two and a half, three times that. So um, that is immediately your profit. And I'd say that three grand for a website with in a partnership is a really tiny amount of money. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure they're looking at five grand up for a, for a website and I wish them all the all the luck with that and I hope that they make more profits because yeah. that it's will then mean that they can employ people. Out, I think. It's really interesting and very brave of them and I yeah I think they're they're really brave and yeah I think his point like you say the 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 thing to pick up, pick up from it is um it's something that is comfortable for them but sometimes business isn't comfortable and you need to make a decision on what profits you need to be making to grow um, mm. or to in you know attract better quality employees um so yeah i i think it's it's really really decent of them to to put that out um yeah and they've only been going two and a half years so you know it's nothing is it in time i mean i've only been going three years so and i'm you know i'm just starting to to work it all out uh and i'd be happy to be honest with my pricing if i could tell you what that was Uh, uh, marvellous yeah. what else have you got for his job we haven't talked about branding for a, at least a week um, there's a new, a new brand is out uh, Nat West the, the the Frank Bank as the Viz used to call them do you remember that <laughs> yeah, no, I don't remember I, uh, I was never a Viz oh, fan alright I can't go any further um, they have taken their uh, sort of interlocking arrows is what I'd call it Like a, it's like a weird elongated hexagon kind of thing that's weird i'd never seen them as arrows i always saw them as cubes 
Oh, really? I've yeah. never seen them as cubes, ever. Yeah, because they're like chevrons, aren't they? But yeah. I guess depending on how you look at them. They've they've gone through a rebrand, and they've turned that shape that you see that I never saw <laughs> into a cube. So it's kind of like Cubert now, the, the video game. Mm. Uh, and they've animated it as everyone's animating logos. Yeah. Why not? Um, I, yeah, uh, good for them. Bully for them. And do you know what they've done? They've gone from a, they've gone for a, back to the archives and gone for a 1968 one at West logo. Were we talking about this a little while ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and another one and another one. So that's yeah. Future Brand, who are looking forwards, obviously. They, they've, and they're also drawing, they've got these kind of, illustrations that are on a really strange isometric grid uh, that to me they don't look quite right because they're not that square do you know what i mean they're they're slightly longer than they are they're slightly longer than they are deep and um, i don't know if you yeah, can see those kind of like those yeah yeah um, but I like, I'm, I'm in a i'm in an isometric frame of mind at the minute so but it, it looks like a bank doesn't it it looks it does um i just think it's a bit it's a bit meh a bit it's not very challenging it's not. But it's not it's, in your face. Uh, I guess for it's a major yeah. high street brand. It's. I guess that's not the the brief. No, is it is, it? absolutely. Yeah, they've got this kind of diagonal stripe, which was you know all the young designers were churning that one out about ten years ago, weren't they? The, oh, where's that? They were, where they've they've over over highlighted. They've highlighted all of their um their taglines, and then they've got this kind of diagonal stripe that like a. Oh, I can't even see that anyway. I quite like it. Um, I mean. It is exactly the same as the 1968 one, really, isn't it? I mean, they haven't really tweaked it in any shape or form. I, I like no. the realism of the 1968 one. It looks like it it's looks actually like, a photograph of... It looks of metal cubes, yeah, doesn't it? of blocks. And that yeah. I, I think that the um, that the new one looks like an, an illustration. It's gone for a sort of a sprayed kind of like a, an airbrushed yeah, yeah. feel to yeah, it. Yeah. It's interesting, I guess. It's nice to see the you know, exposed and the, the video of it. Let me, it's like an ITV ident kind of thing. Just yeah. a little cubes that twist and then go back out. They don't tweaked again. the um, text at all, have they? I don't think so. If you look at the right at the top of the old logo and the new one, it looks, I can't see any differences off the. Yeah, well, this is us just talking about websites on the thingy, so. Yeah. But anyway, that was interesting. And yeah, the fact that they've gone back to the archives is, is definitely the, the theme of 2016, isn't it? Yeah, I wonder which what, who's going to be next. Great, <sighs> Great Britain? <Are> we gonna, <laughs> seems like we're heading back towards that yeah, kind of, you know. I'll have to go back further than 68, I think. Oh, Jesus. Anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> um, so moving forward in time for my next bit of news, it's um, it's been a really interesting week for space exploration um elon musk the head of spacex has announced his his kind of long-awaited plan to colonize mars he's talked about it often enough and he's always said that the falcon rockets that he uses to launch satellites and things is is basically just a stepping stone to colonizing mars he thinks we should be a multi-planet civilization um so he uh, at uh, a european astronomical conference he spent two hours explaining his his uh, his dream of how this would all work and it was quite interesting some bits of it were very yep that's doable the technology's there and then other bits it was just like oh what really you're dreaming 
these time scales particularly were crazy. So basically, his his plan is to build a rocket bigger than any rocket has been built before, which is nearly four times as powerful as any rocket that's been built before. To build it almost entirely out of carbon fiber, which has never been done before on that scale, uh, launch it, and then have the boosters that launch it land again, be refueled themselves, launch refuel the rocket and then in space and then for that rocket to fly to mars and land vertically using rockets um which is the stuff of dan dare or thunderbirds really it's you know none of that has really been done before um and he's talking about these rockets being able to be reused a thousand times um and so far he you know i, I think everyone thinks that SpaceX and the Falcon 9, because he lands the rockets after he launches satellites into space, they think they're reusable. And that's the plan. But he hasn't reused one of them yet. Um, he just keeps launching new ones. They land, and then they're kind of being tested and um, uh, kind of given an overhaul before they can launch again. But it, so far, he hasn't launched a single rocket for a second time. Um, but one of his competitors has. And this is Jeff Bezos, who's the uh, guy behind Amazon. Um, and he has a company called Blue Origin. Now, Blue Origin have taken a really different approach to space than uh, Elon Musk has. Elon Musk has got this kind of fail fast mentality. So he just churns stuff out, tests it, throws it up in the air, knows that it might explode, um, but figures you can learn more just by doing things really quickly. Let's get out there and do it. Whereas Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin have been taking these tiny little incremental steps with their uh, new Shepard spaceship. So whereas Musk can launch satellites into geostationary orbit and land again thousands of miles away in the middle of the ocean, Bezos's rocket so far has only ever gone up and down. And it goes up 120 miles, so or 100 miles, so up into space, but with no velocity in a, a sideways direction. So it just goes straight up, straight back down, and he lands it. But what he's done that Musk hasn't done is he's used that same rocket again and again and again and again. So he's launched this, the same rocket five times now. And he did a big test uh, a couple of days ago, which uh, was to test the crew escape um, system. So basically the rocket goes up and then the, the crew capsule uh, rockets go off underneath that, and it's to simulate what would happen if the rocket exploded. Would the crew capsule still be able to escape? So that basically gets jetted off on really powerful rockets, just a tiny bit at the top, and then comes down under parachutes. And they thought that the the power of the escape module jettisoning would either destroy the the booster rocket or cause it to crash, or they didn't think they'd be able to land it again. But everything went perfectly in the crew capsule uh, disappeared and landed perfectly under parachutes and the, the rocket carried on up into space and landed bang in the middle of the target a couple of minutes later. Um, and I think they're at that point now where they're going to ramp up their plans and they're going to be able to do things that Musk can't do. So they're going to be launching satellites into space, landing the rocket again, and then using that rocket again 
to launch another satellite pretty quickly. Um, but I think it's the it's just the differing approaches that's sort of fascinating. Um, and they've both got big plans for big rockets. Um, Musk, uh, the the kind of code name for his rocket is um, BFR. B standing for big and R standing for rocket. I'll let you guess what the F stands for. Um, but yeah, it's just brilliant. And Europe's Europe's uh, rocket, the Ariane 5, recently, uh, yesterday, made its 74th consecutive launch without, uh, without problem. So I think we're on the cusp of really amazing things in space. Um, and obviously we, uh, we crashed into a comet as well this week. So mm. it's, it's good stuff if you're into space and have got, you know, dreams of being an astronaut like I still do. Well, it's a good time to get off the planet, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah. Maybe we need to, um, we need to start renovating that, uh, rocket test site on the Isle of Wight so we can leave. Um, should we go on to our main topic for this week? Yeah, let's. Yeah, so we just wrote down a few things that we were going to uh, discuss, um, and this is what our fa- three favourite pieces of art. But how did you choose, and what does favourite mean? I think that, that that for me is sort of the first interesting part of the discussion, really. <laughs> well, I've, I guess I've gone, it's, in some ways it's less favourites and, and ones that had an impact on me, I think, because favourite, in some ways might be more accessible or it might be the thing that, you know, if you could choose a painting to have on your wall, what would it be? Maybe that's more what a favorite painting is, but these paintings for me were the ones that, um, yeah, kind of made an impact on me when I first saw them either in a book or actually in a gallery. What about you? Yeah, I've gone for the same thing. Uh, it was, I've stood in front of uh, all of these paintings, the originals, and I think it's important that if you know that that's that was important for me of why I chose it because it mm-hmm. makes such a difference, and I it was a sense of immersion and impact and uh, un- you know all sorts of all sorts of emotional response that I wasn't expecting to have and that I didn't want to have sometimes. And I think that's what great art does is that it reaches inside you and, and does something to you that you just cannot control. Um, and it's just hanging there. This, that, you know, this piece that doesn't do, you know, it doesn't change. It doesn't change in light. It doesn't, it's just emotive. Um, and whatever, it, whatever power it has, it, it draws you back. And whenever you're going past that place again, you know, for me, I'll always go in and look at it if it's available, um, depending on what piece of art it is. But yeah. yeah, I think I think that's what that's what I that's what I uh, I used as a as a judge. So yeah, it might not like the painting, but um, yeah, it, it's it affected me deeply. Is that does that sound yeah, a bit too? Absolutely. No, I think that's perfectly perfectly fine. Um, the first painting I've got, or the first painting I've chosen. Uh, is the only one of the three that I haven't actually seen in real life. Um, it's in Potsdam, I think. Um, and I first saw this in Gombrich's The Story of Art, which my mum got many, many years ago when she was going to do an open university course in the history of art. And because I was interested in drawing, this was when I was 
six or seven, I guess, maybe a little bit older, but I was interested in drawing and I just used to look at the pictures. And it was the one picture in the book that absolutely blew me away. And the first edition that my mum had of this book was, it was all in black and white, all, nearly all the pictures were in black and white. And this was one of the black and white pictures. And I think it works just as well in black and white as it does in colour. It wasn't until I saw a later edition of the book that I saw it finally in colour. And it's The Incredulity of St. Thomas by Caravaggio. So it's often just called Doubting Thomas by Caravaggio. And it's the it's based on the, the bit from the Bible where Thomas doesn't believe that the resurrected Jesus is actually Jesus. And I think Jesus says, uh, reach hither thy hand and be not doubtful, but believing. And he, he kind of guides Thomas's hand to the wound made by the Roman's spear in his side. But the painting itself is just breathtaking to me. The, the, the way that it captures the light and the likenesses of the the four figures at the center of the painting um, their heads kind of all come together in a, a, a diamond and they're kind of illuminated um, and I think it was the first time I'd seen a painting that I couldn't quite <laughs> appropriately I couldn't quite believe it was as old as it was or that it had actually been painted. I couldn't understand how it could have been painted because it's so lifelike and so correct. You know, the folds of the material, the the way the light um, falls on the kind of furrowed brow of Thomas or on Jesus's hand. Um, and I'd never seen anything like it. And I fell in love with Caravaggio's work because of this painting. And I've, you know, I have seen quite a lot of Caravaggio's in real life. And this is still the one for me that, that kind of blows the rest of them away. Um, I think it's a, an astonishing painting in every way. Yeah, it's it's stunning. I've not seen it in real life. I just, uh, but in in the, the when I first saw it in black and white, maybe that's why it grabbed me because it, in black and white it almost looked like a photograph mm-hmm. rather than the painting. Um, cause you don't have, you know, if you look at an old painting, it has the, the kind of the colors of an old painting, doesn't it? The kind of brownie reds and the, the creams and things. Um, whereas in black and white, it, it kind of loses all that. And it's, you're just left with the, the draftsmanship and the, the you, shapes and things. Are you trying to improve Caravaggio's work there? Yeah. <laughs> <Making> it <black laughs> and white. It'd be better if he, yeah, it yeah. was good, right? But it just saved himself a fortune in paint as well. <laughs> yeah, but that's pick pick one for me. All right. Well, I'm trying to follow that up with something similar. I, I, I'm I'm I am cheating because I am typical like this. Even when I'm choosing food, that I'll always order right at the last time. So I've got a few to choose. Have you got a list? No, I've got four, and I'm kind of like, well, I'm going to go with. I'm going to start with my favourite artist, and he's not hugely popular artist i have spoken about him before it's not he's rolf called, harris is it he's called rolf harris and it's his kangaroo no um it's william orpen uh he was a painter uh, at the um an edwardian painter he was very famous in the sort of 1910s to 1920s i'd say uh, as a as a society portrait painter 
And I met a friend, the story for me of how I discovered him was completely accidental. I, um, or when I say discovered him, I didn't discover him, (laughs) (laughs) but I went to, uh, I, I met an old friend at, uh, the Imperial War Museum. Um, we were both coming to London and we said, where should we meet? And we went there and wandered around a bit and there was an art exhibition on on the top floor because they've got galleries up there so if you're over there they've got some cracking art in there um but it's all hidden away although they've redone it haven't they so it might be more exposed but it was an exhibition on uh for william orpen's work and they had gathered together from all around the world some of his um better known paintings now i knew nothing about him and i think this is why it just had such a big impact on me because what happened was he he was a big artist but because of modern art the rise of modern art and modernism and all the things that happened in the 20s Mm. 30s and 40s his style his his he stuck to the old way of painting and therefore he became an anachronism um within the artistic world and was looked down on in the 50s and 60s and it was only in the 70s that he started um rising you know his his star started rising again and this was the show that really kicked off his his fame again Um, and he paints um mainly portraiture um and he was a you know a hugely um uh in demand artist at the time and painted all sorts of uh uh you know the gentry um from winston churchill when he was young to the king uh, he paints hague uh, he painted the peace process at the end of the uh, the palace of versailles controversially yeah. um but the the ones i really love of him are his self-portraits and he does go back to the masters you know when they were painting themselves um yeah and i just thought that this one was great because it kind of sums up everything i love about art um and uh it's called um, it's called Ready to Start, and he painted it in 1917. He volunteered and joined the army as a war artist and went out to France. And he does a, a self-portrait in his uniform, um, and you can see absolutely everything about him. You can't see this, can you, Rob? So I'm going to I'm send you. A pic- it send it's all right, your, I've got it. I'm going to send you a picture. I've googled it. Ah, oh, sorry. That's marvelous. So, I don't know him at all. Right. So he painted a, a series of these um, portraits all through his life. Um, he was obsessed with the self. But he this sort of signals, um, basically, you've got a picture of a street scene on the left um, looking out of a window. He's, he's in his digs, as it were. And there's a mirror in front of him. And he's wearing a, a goatskin or um, coat that a lot of the British Army wore in the winter. He's got his... Um, tin hat on and then there's some wallpaper behind him and then in the foreground is it's the pictures framed by uh, a swan investor or bryant matchbox um a pile of art books some bills um and booze and in all of his paintings are booze because it's something that destroyed him in the end but also mm. in the background you've got all sorts of int- and what i love of it is the intricacies so you've got a biplane flying above um the skyline oh, yeah. and then you've got the rather grim looking northern french town outside that sort of harks back to the north um you know sort of working class streets yep. um and then in the back you've got uh, in the background of the mirror you've got a, ca- a single ca- candle and then a kind of ghost-like figure rising up from that that could be either a, a woman's top 
or a figure of Christ hanging or something yeah. like that. And, and he was, he was, he was an, an Irishman who, um, moved to London and made his fame in London and kind of re- rejected his Irishness. But at the time, obviously this was the time of the Easter rising and a lot of his friends, uh, were supporting the Republican movement. He was incredibly conflicted about it. Uh, and as he was by the war. So it's a time in his life where he's looking over his shoulder and it, he's looking back from, you know, the, the fun and frivolity that he had in high society towards something that changed him forever, which was, the first world war. And I just find yeah. that infinitely fascinating. Um, and I, and I just love the composition of the picture, the colors, everything about it is He's it's a fantastic. Painter. Yeah. He is massively underrated. Yeah. Um, and once you start dipping into his work, it really is sensational. And his use of color, it's really impossible to see it in print because his blues and his pinks are startlingly bright. Yeah. That's really lovely. It's a gem. That one. Yes. So go and see it. I think that that one is available in, I think it is in the Imperial War Museum still. I, I don't okay. think it was a borrowed one. So you can actually go and see that one. Field trip number three. <laughs> uh, well, my next painting is three paintings. And it, I think this is from, really from when I was at college studying graphic design, but kind of doing art history and and learning about how, kind of how to look at things. And it was the first time that I'd really had much of an interest in more modern art. I I think really from seeing the Caravaggio, I'd, I'd been absolutely, not obsessed, but I fell in love with sort of Renaissance art and, you know, the great masters and things. And I'd never really been uh, that fussed by anything that came after that. Um but my second picture is Three Studies for Figures at the Base of a Crucifixion by Francis Bacon, which was painted in 1944. Um, and it's a horrific painting. It's certainly not the sort of thing you'd want, well, I wouldn't want on my wall. Three sort of nightmarish uh, creatures, almost like a harpy or, a, you know, something out of hell. Um and it just, it always struck me as being incredibly powerful. And the way that Bacon paints, um, these kind of really saturated, um, sort of opaque red as a, as a base for the paintings. And this kind of creamy fleshiness that he, he conjures with the paint for these creatures. Um, and they're absolutely horrifying and disturbing. And I think, um, you know, they were they were painted towards the end of the war. You know, the horrors of the Holocaust and the concentration camps had just kind of come about. Um, and I guess it reflects that time. Um, but uh, they certainly triggered a love affair with Bacon's work for me. Um, and in the same way that I couldn't believe how Caravaggio could paint so realistically and so accurately and beautifully, I found it really hard to decipher how Bacon could paint in such a kind of a visceral way, um, you know, conveying horror and torment and confusion. 
Um, so yeah, so that's always been one of my favorites. And I had, you know, this is in the tape, tape modern. Um, and it's still, you know, no matter how many times I see it, it still strikes me as something awful, but wonderful. Mm. Yeah, it is, is so moving and, and rather, um, Gerald Scarf, you can see some of his horrors in it. Absolutely. You, Particularly, he... yeah, the figure on the right is very <clears throat> Scarf-like, I think. Mm. Well, I'm going to follow that with something equally as grim. Um, I, it, it's Mark Rothko and it's the, um, the Seagram paintings, uh, I don't know what they call them, the C, the Seagram series, but it's red on maroon, yeah. especially, um, they are rectangular paintings if you haven't seen them. Um, and they are mainly, he was kind of just painted large tonal, um, abstract pictures that almost towards the end um, of his life became literally just a single color that you could barely discern the, the, the any kind of change in hue. But these ones are much more deep, um, but they are just re- rectangles. Um, and they, I, <laughs> if you go into that room and I've been lucky enough to be in there when it's really not busy and there's nobody there for 10, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. the sense of, I don't know what it is, just foreboding and uh, doom <laughs> that is just uh, the, basically the colours start to shift, the space, uh, the spaces inside them start to move. Um, it's it's just an incredible experience sitting in front of those pictures. It really is. Um, the, the the historical bit of it is that he um, he, he designed them for a, for a restaurant, didn't he? Did he? <laughs> yes. And the, the, he, he withdrew his commission, so kept the paintings, because um, he he was doubtful whether they oh, were yeah, appropriate the for, a, for a restaurant. <laughs> because his, his, he said he, made, he wanted to make the viewers feel as if they were trapped in a room where all the doors and windows are bricked up, so that all they can do is butt their heads forever against the wall. <laughs> Which I, I he was imagine. inspired by Michelangelo's walls in the staircase. And uh, somewhere oh, okay. I haven't been uh, in the, uh, at the Medician Library in Florence. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't looked up to see what, what that looks like. But yeah. um, I've sat there on my own. And I actually had a, a really dark experience with it where my, my father suffered from mental illness all of his life. And I had a particularly bad moment with him in London where I'd lost him and uh, he was very unpredictable and I was trying to get him to meet me in the Tate and that's where I ended up waiting. And it just was this horrific kind of uh, experience that I found just compelling and I couldn't leave there. I, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a scab that you're picking at, you know, on your knee or whatever. And, um, and you can't stop. Uh, and I, whenever I go there, I try and get, I, if there's somebody else in the room, I can't go in there. But if, if I can get in there on my own, I, I hope the room's still there. Um, I, I hope it's still yeah, there. I think it is. Um, but uh, I think that um, Robert Hughes summed it up in his um, The Shock of the New Book that I've spoken mm. about before. He calls it a convulsion of pessimistic inwardness. It's strange, isn't it, that he didn't think they were suitable for a restaurant? I would imagine you go in lots of restaurants and pizza places and they'll have reproductions of Rothko's on the wall because yes. they're probably seen uh, seen to be quite inoffensive and almost just like wallpaper, aren't they? Yeah, it's something Whereas about the seeing scale. them in the real, you yeah. know, seeing the real paintings is a completely different experience. 
it's a scale. You're looking into nothing, and I think yeah. you know. And then the, the nothing is is what is that? You know, is it is it nothing? Is it death? Is it God? Is it I don't know. But it, it just it, it it moves as well. Have you have yeah. you sat there and look, watched them at all? Have yeah, you to them. His work always reminds me of ooh, my pie's just arriving. Um, his work always reminds me a little of the after image you get of things. You know, if you're staring at a bright window and you close your eyes and you get that kind of strange after image that reversed or, uh, and they always remind me a little bit of that. When when I was a kid, I used to get this feeling that when I shut my eyes uh, and I was slightly tired, there was something further away that I could touch. Yeah, Uh, I get that as well. uh, Really bizarre feeling. And that's what I get with these paintings that I'm stepping out of the real into something else. Um, the other, the positive side of this is that I'd really love to go and see is James Turrell's, um, have you, uh, I, I don't know. The, the Yorkshire Sculpture Gallery. Okay. Yeah. Um, they've got one. It's got like a light, light room or something like that. Is it called? Oh, the, the ones with the, like the hall in the roof. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd get that kind of, that feeling, but it's a lot more positive, isn't it? Of yeah. That sort of, that he's making a art out of holes in things. It's a little bit like, um, Anish Kapoor as well with his pigment paintings or the, you know, the ones that are kind of mirrored and you kind of, you look at them or the sculptures that have kind of like a, a deep pigmented section and they just look like nothingness. It's that kind of feeling as well of, yeah, infinite depth, I think, that is, is unnerving. Got anything nice? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my last painting is... Uh, completely different to the other two although i think it shares something with them both in which is perhaps you know caravaggio's mastery of form and anatomy and in some ways the way that francis bacon conjured up the the sense of uh, heaviness of flesh and the the kind of realism of of a body and it's um whistle jacket by george stubbs so painted in 1762 and it's a painting of a horse, which doesn't really do it justice. Um, I've always been completely blown away by this. And I think partly it's because it's a painting of a horse on a completely plain background, which just seems completely incongruous for something that was painted in the uh, 18th century. Um, and it it doesn't just look like a study. You know, it's not as if he, he'd kind of done a sketch and just left the background blank i think it was intentionally painted to be uh, a celebration of this astonishing famous horse called whistle jacket um and i think more than either of the other two this is it's just beautiful it's an astonishing painting of a beautiful animal and i think there's a real you can sense the real joy and admiration that he had for for the physical form of the animal. Um, and this is a, a painting that I've sat in front of for a lot of time. Just, I find it mesmerizing. I think it's astonishing. The sheen of the, the coat of the horse is, is amazing. It's a, it's a, an, an insanely good piece of art. <laughs> Isn't it? It's just, I love it so much. I knew yeah. you'd choose it though. I knew that would be on your <laughs> list, that one. <laughs> But yeah, it is fabulous and it's free to go and look at as long Absolutely. as you like, which is, you know, come on. 
you've got to go and see that yeah, if you've only got five minutes in uh london and you're near trafalgar square you can go into the national gallery and i think it's just it's like a couple of rooms away from the entrance and you can go and see this painting and just just revel in it for a few minutes and then get on with your shopping <laughs> you'll feel better for it <laughs> Well, so what's 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 last on your list? Well, I've just shared it with you on the screen. It's, oh, my last one is um, by Vermeer, and it's the Little Street. Um, the I'm going to pronou- try and pronounce this in Dutch. So uh, apologies to our um, Dutch listeners. Uh, it's Hestratje, Hestratje, and it's in the Rijksmuseum. <laughs> that's good, eh? good yeah. no, it did sound a little bit more like the chef Swedish the yeah it did didn't it I am wearing a, 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 one of those funny hats um, no, oh god my brain what was what were those hat? what are those hats called what a chef's hat yeah chef's hat oh, chef's hat <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a street scene um, and it's of a house uh, it's it was painted in roughly what sixteen fifty seven sixteen fifty eight something like that. Uh, there was a lot of debate about where it was. I'm not going to get into that. I think this is one of the most fantastic paintings you can spend fifteen twenty minutes standing in front of. It's very small when you see it. It's probably only just under a two kind of size. It is perfection. It is perfection in its imperfection. It's just astonishing the it's gorgeous the uh it's it's basically a, a, a sort of half of a house and then a passageway and there are some workers m- milling about um scrubbing a floor someone's um uh doing a tapestry or doing some needlepoint and someone's cleaning something in the back you're not quite sure what it is it's very still and quiet it's a lovely day uh, and you can just it just feels like it's alive and and you know at any point it could be you know like we were just, <laughs> you know harry potter kind of picture that yeah. somebody will just stroll past or a cart will go past and it's just a point in time frozen forever in perfection i think the house is crumbling and falling apart there's whitewash that is really uh, you know not very neat um but it's just the light of it the light is perfect it's like a photograph it it's, it's like the original caravaggio but with modernism brought into it it's got a real life to it do you, yeah. do you, do you know what i mean yeah, it has absolutely. it's not opposed um symbol you know there's no symbolism to it whatsoever it's a still life but of um, working people yeah you? it's just fantastic and um yeah and it just it brings me joy to look at and i i because i had some that was still a bit dark and i just thought no i need to what <laughs> what ones brought me joy when i stood in front of one and yeah. this one was just i didn't even know he'd painted this i'd seen the girl with the uh the Brilliant. pearl earring and um uh, you know and I, I thought that you know that's mainly what he's famous for that kind mm. of portraiture but this one just it just blew me away with its normality you know, it's like a working yeah. class street. I think I think they found out that this this house was a tripe. You know, it produced tripe, so it's like a butcher's. Um, but it's a very beautiful house. I'd I'd quite like to live God, in it. Yeah. it. Looks very interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, I think the things that amaze me about this type of painting and this one in particular is how he conveys so much detail with kind of so little. Like above the the black doorway on the left. Great for our listeners, this bit. But the the kind of slightly 
you know, decaying pointing of the brickwork. Yeah. It's just done, you know, with, with kind of very little paint, but God, it looks good. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely painting. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. I hadn't seen that one before. And if you're in Amsterdam, you can go and have a look at it. Yeah. It's a good city for uh, for art. It's a good city all around, really. I love it. Field trip four. <laughs> <laughs> I got to fly yeah. on a plane though. I'm like B. A. Baracus. Um, uh, so that that's me done. That was brilliant. Really enjoyed yeah, that. Enjoyed that. Yeah. Could trawl through uh, some some new and some old art. Yeah, I think it's good sometimes to talk about something that you yourself know well, or you know, you know why you know it's a painting you like, but you you know you haven't really thought about why. Kind of trying to explain that helps you understand it a bit more, doesn't it? Like think, a lot of things when you're trying to explain. Yeah, and I think I, I was I was trying to avoid you know doing that thing of reading what other people think about art, and I think it's really important that you do that. You know that you just don't read. You know, maybe later on, yeah, by all means. But when you stand in front of art, don't read the description, but let it. You know, let your own body f- tell you how it feels about that piece of art, whatever it yeah. is. Uh, I, think it, I think you'll get much more out of art that way. Damn right. We should do pies. I we think. should. We should. We should. Have you, uh, have you got a pie? I have. <clears throat> I've got a, a defrosted. <laughs> You're really plumbing the depths, are you? 79p this one, Rob. <laughs> I'm worried about your finances. I think it reflects everything in the, your choice of pies lately. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a waitrose though. Come on, give okay. me some. Uh, it's a Melton Mowbray, just a traditional pork pie. It's quite a good load of jelly in it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's obviously been frozen, so the pastry's not as crisp as it could be. But it's just a traditional bog standard pork pie. I just fancied a bit of pork pie. What's wrong with that? Come on, mm-hmm. leave me alone. Well, I'm going in. Fancy bit of pork pie. Hmm. That's yeah, good. Peppery, good jelly. I'm washing it down. Or choking on it. <laughs> it's a bit too much pepper in it. Yeah. What have you got there? How does it how does a, a pot pie defrost? I've never had a frozen pot pie. I don't pie know, before. but if I'm here tomorrow then you know it works. Okay. Uh I have got a steak and ale pie from Church Street Food Hall in Twickenham. And I've had their pies before. I haven't had a steak and ale. Uh my mother in law. Um, dropped by yesterday, I think, and um, got me a pie. I hadn't uh, requested a pie. How generous of her. Absolutely. So I'll just go in. It's got very crisp, flaky pastry on top. Mm, really good pastry. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. Quite a gelatinous sort of gravy inside, quite thick. Um, very taste of ale, but the meat's nice and tender. The pastry's cracking. Um, yeah, and as I mentioned before, I'm washing it down with some dag. <laughs> what does your What does your pie get out of uh, ten? Um, it gets a five. It's a it's a bog standard Melton Mowbray. Bit too much p- pepper for my liking. Jelly's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm washing it down with a Twickenham Grandstand. Lovely. <clears throat> top, Mine top gets a six. Mine gets a six. It's a good pie. Brilliant pastry. You have to add one on because the mother-in-law got it. Yeah, so it's a seven. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think she listens, John. No. No. Never mind. Oh, well. She's still my favourite mother-in-law. Well, please send us your, if you've got some, uh, you know, favourite art and favourite piece of art that you think challenges you, 
or you know upset you or moved you or shocked you send them in mm, absolutely uh, that'd be really good to uh to get some uh, get some little contributions on the subject of your favorite art yeah that'd be great so i'm gonna call it the end here i guess because i think uh, so we've been we're well over as as ever we seem to be uh, we seem to be botting out an hour and 15 minutes at the moment yeah that's Child that's rock. probably uh it's probably the size of our bladders in uh, in minutes it's it's all or hungry wives yeah yeah. <laughs> well, it was a delight, John. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was brilliant. Oh, Have John. a lovely weekend. It's a delight, and you. All the best. Speeches. Sequence stars were no good for making carbon in this life.